believers and followers is not a condition for knowing God. It is a necessary sign of knowing God. In our passage this morning, John now fills out for us in a broader sense what it means to be commandment lovers and followers. What he means by using the word commandment. And surprisingly, John doesn't become a lawyer for us. Demonstrating commandment keeping and all of its gavel pounding glory. Instead, he very helpfully and he very practically boils down commandment following to one concept. Joining Jesus in his nonviolent takeover of his creation by loving others with the love that he provides. In our passage this morning, we're going to see two truths. First, we're going to see that when Jesus takes over his people with his saving love, He doesn't just leave them endorsing the idea of love, but he transforms them into active channels of his victorious love. And secondly, when Jesus takes over his people with his saving love, he faithfully keeps them from becoming traitorous lovers of the worldly gods that are all around us. Young Christians, young theologians, as you listen this morning, I want you to think about one question. What has Jesus done to give you the ability to love other people the way that he loves? What has Jesus done to give you the ability to love other people the way that he loves? This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus has given through the pen of John's first epistle, chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning so thankful that you have loved us so well. 
thankful that you have loved us so well in giving us Jesus. And you have loved us through the past actions and works of Jesus, the finished work of his redemption for us on the cross and in his, rede- his resurrection. But you are still loving us through him now, even as he is very present with us, loving us in our daily lives, loving us in his sanctification of us, giving us the ability to love others. I pray this morning that by your Spirit we would understand your Word more clearly and understand more of the love that He has given to us and is working through us towards others. We ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as many of us know, a couple weeks ago, our nation observed the 50th anniversary of of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. And when we look back now on the immense turmoil and extremely violent racial tension that engulfed much of America, especially the South, during the 1960s, what makes the movement that Dr. King led so powerful was not just its accomplishments, but the way in which those accomplishments were secured. Dr. King, having been influenced by the methods of Gandhi, was dedicated to a system of protest that embraced nonviolence. King once told the New York Times... We must use the weapon of love. We must have compassion and understanding for those who hate us. And though and through King's nonviolent methods of protest, which forced legal action and appeal and legislation, the civil rights movement enacted a nonviolent takeover of many government policies that have given an increased measure of freedom to many. A country that still and always will struggle with racism. Our passage this morning is also about a takeover. It's about an invasion of a new system, a new creation, into the presence of a dark and decaying kingdom. But it's a takeover that doesn't come by the means of bullets and steel of tank divisions. It doesn't come through the cutthroat, underhanded deals of an executive's boardroom or even the fake smiles of a con artist running for office. It's a takeover that doesn't do violence to the opposition, but rather changes them from the inside out with a love that transforms brutal enemies into lovers of God and lovers of others. It causes them to love the values of their current kingdom less while producing an undying love and yearning for the kingdom that has already come and is still to come in Jesus. Significantly, John begins our section this morning in verse 7 by referring to his readers as the beloved. A name that's filled with all kinds of meaning and connotations of election and union with Christ the one who's called the beloved of the Father, in Matthew chapter 3 and in Luke chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. 
God has sovereignly and irrevocably set His affections and love upon us. Because we've been chosen to be in the Beloved, we are now His Beloved as well. But then John picks the conversation up where he left it in verses 4 through 6 from last week, having just declared that Jesus' followers ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked in verse 6, John now claims that the command he is giving them is not something new he is bringing up, or even as new as Jesus' teaching, but in fact is very old. The ancient age of John's command goes back at least to the time of the great Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we recite together as a congregation on every baptism Sunday. Most of us probably even know it by heart. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and mind and strength. And the command in Leviticus chapter 19 to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we know that in Jesus' debate with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, he's going to say that these two commandments sum up the entire Old Testament. This is what God has been requiring from his people all along, he says. But the command to love is even older older than this. Love is an expression of God's eternal nature. It's a constant state of existence between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it was meant to be part of the glue that holds His world together from the moment of creation. We were created to be a people who needed no formal command to love because we lived inside of it. We lived inside the command every day, breathing it in and out naturally. The greatest of God's gifts at creation was the unblemished and pure and naked and exposed relationship of love that we had with Him and we had with one another. The greatest curse of the curse was not just the loss of these things as though they simply disappeared, but the perversion, the twisting, and the mangling of love so that now we understand it or misunderstand it differently. We now have our hearts filled with excitement and expectation when we think we see love when it's really only lust wearing love's mask. We find ourselves drawn to someone or a group of someones thinking that an oasis of love has at last been found only to discover in our heartache that it was a mirage that was hiding manipulation and greed and opportunism all along. And on the flip side, oftentimes real love is being held out to us. But we will misidentify it as being meddlesome or harsh or mean and we push it away. You see, real love, God's love, didn't change at the fall. But we did. And so now the language of God's love in which we were created to be fluent sounds like meaningless gibberish, a foreign tongue that offends our sensibilities. 
We'd rather be wooed by the sweet-sounding language we understand that makes promises we want to believe, spoken to us the way that we want to hear it, even if it's just self-interest impersonating love's voice. And yet, on the other hand, John says in verse 8 that the command to love is new. It is new in the very distinct ways in which Christ filled love with new meaning in His ministry. First, in the very personal love that He had with the Father. He loved me before the creation of the world, Jesus says to His Father in John 17 in His high priestly prayer. Also, the new meaning that Jesus gives to love in His humility, pictured in His washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. A humility shown in a world that does not consider humility a virtue at all. And this humble act of love is washing of the disciples' feet as a metaphor for another, another ultimate meaning of Christ's that he gives to love. That, of course, being a sacrificial dying love for those who were not his friends, but his enemies. A love that carried divine saving power. But John's doing more. He's doing more than simply pointing back to Jesus' ministry as an example for how we should love one another. And he's doing more than reminding us of the command to love God and others that summarizes all of the Old Testament. John is shining the spotlight on one extremely important truth that if grasped will revolutionize the way that we understand the command to love. John is saying that for the first time in history, the risen, living Jesus is actually, truly present, both before the Father, always interceding and advocating for us, like we saw in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 last week. But He's also present with His people through the person of the Holy Spirit, as promised in John 14 and 16. And He's present, actually enabling and empowering His people to love with His own love. As a a result, John can say that His commandment is new because the people of God are now enabled to follow it in unheard of ways. Because our Lord is now interceding for us and present with us in unheard of ways. The nation of Kenya, with a population of little more than 40 million, has been suffering severe drought for years. Almost half the population does not have adequate access to safe drinking water. And almost three quarters of the country is without adequate sanitation. Crop and livestock failures are common, and of course famine as a result. Water has come in the form of small, muddy wells and barely trickling brooks. But there's been news of a new discovery that was announced just this last week showing that northern Kenya is sitting on five large natural reservoirs, one of them estimated to be the size of Rhode Island. These reservoirs are thought to hold 66 trillion gallons of water, 
with almost 1 trillion gallons being replenished every year by their natural water drainage from the surrounding topography of Africa. This new discovery will hopefully lead to new levels of access to much needed water and could potentially change the livelihood and economy of many Kenyans for generations. Could. Well, John is saying that his command to love is new because of the newly manifested presence of the divine lover as he is present with us now has forever changed our access to love. Because of this new ministry of love that is marching forward through the presence of Jesus and his spirit among his people, John can say that the darkness is passing away. In the face of this nonviolent takeover, the powers of the old order, the pretend loves and the charlatans under the power of the chief charlatan are fleeing before the light that is now shining. And as this was true in the ministry of the one who came to bring us this light and this love, so also it is true through his followers who radiate this light in their various corners of the dark world. The light is progressively driving out the darkness and it is doing it by means of love. In verses 9 through 11, John confronts those who confess being in this light and yet hate their brothers. In chapter 2, verse 9, and then verse 11, the word hate should not be equated with the worst of human human evils, Nazi death camps or the actions of serial murderers. Rather, John is actually rebuking the idea of being neutral towards people. We might say that there are people that we don't know or love, but that this does not mean the same thing as hating them or simply just being neutral towards them. This isn't really John's view. Rather, for John, as in many other parts of Scripture, hate means anything other than loving the way he has already described Refusing to show anyone, especially brothers and sisters in the Lord, whether we know them or not, courtesy and respect, refusing to care for their real needs if we're able, even if it requires sacrifice. John Calvin called this neutrality fictitious sanctity, which dazzles the eyes of almost all, whereas love is neglected or at least put in a corner. For John Calvin, as for John the Apostle, there is no real sanctity. There's no real holiness where there is simply neutrality or neglect for loving others. Indeed, there's no neutrality at all. We either love them the way Jesus calls us and empowers us to, or we hate them. Note that those who do not love the way John is described are in the darkness and do not even know it in verse 11. Because that's how spiritual darkness works. Being in darkness doesn't mean walking in darkness and knowing it most of the time, but walking in darkness and thinking that you're taking a walk on a sunny day. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 3 that people rather love the darkness 
They stay in the darkness because it seems more comfortable to them. And for those of us who know Jesus, who have been given of his righteousness by faith, this same truth, the same dynamic applies to immaturity. The darkness of our immaturity means that we are unaware of our immaturity most of the time. In fact, it can mean that we are most proud of those things sometimes that are most dark and most immature about us. And like when waking up in the morning when the last thing we want is for someone to turn on the bedroom light, sometimes we can get hints of our darkness but reach over and hit the snooze button anyway. John is warning us of this very thing that those who confess to being the light and yet do not evidence the love of Christ. As Isaiah wrote in chapter 5 of his, of his prophecy, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. But after challenging us to love others with the love that has already been given in Jesus, at the end of our passage, John warns us of what not to love. As those who are the beloved, having been made citizens of the kingdom of light and having been rescued from the kingdom of the evil one, John now warns of treason, of directing our love that should be directed towards God and others, towards the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world, says verse 15. And quite obviously, in verses 15 through 17, the the word world cannot refer to creation or the material universe. In fact, contrary to a lot of even fundamentalist thinking, John is not even demonizing human culture or human enjoyment of God's world per se, in and of itself. Rather, John is labeling the evil sphere which does not recognize Christ or those who follow Christ, as he will say in chapter 3. It is filled with dangerous deceivers at every turn, as chapter 4 is going to say. It is the realm that is under the control of the evil one, as he will say in chapter 5. And so, from the standpoint of the human will, the world is the place where God does not rule, where God-keep-out signs are hanging on every wall. It is the Tower of Babel in all of its glory, a system of thinking and values and loves that builds layer after layer of walls to keep pesky divine judges out so as to pursue sinful agendas. Indeed, John goes further past Babel to describe the world system in verse 16. Biblically biblically speaking, the world system begins with the first two people in it. In Genesis 3... Eve sees that the fruit of the forbidden tree is good for food, the lust of the flesh. That it is a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And that it is desired to make one wise, the pride of life. John warns his readers against setting their affections on this system, on the world in this sense. As one contemporary writer has said, quite simply, the world is a dangerous place for its human inhabitants. People either conquer the world through the Son of God or they are conquered by it. 
and seen through the lens of God's persevering grace in the gospel, these verses remind us that when Jesus takes over his people with his saving love, he faithfully keeps them from becoming traitorous lovers of the worldly gods around them. He does this in us and through us, ultimately. And between these very heavy notes of challenge and warning in this passage, warnings and challenges that make us feel very uncomfortable, John brings great comfort. John brings great assurance to us. After calling for love of the brethren and hatred for the world's values as being marks and evidence of the presence of faith, John now assures his readers that he considers them people of faith in verses 12 through 14. There's a lot of debate on how many groups John is addressing here and why he seems to repeat himself a lot to these groups. So to be brief, I'm just going to tell you that I think that every time John says little children, he's speaking to his whole audience as the adopted children of the Lord and John's own disciples. And I think when he uses the term fathers, he is speaking to older, more mature members of the community, while young men refers to younger believers. When elders go to Presbytery every quarter, and we hear someone stand up to make an address to the whole, the whole group, the whole presbytery during matters of business, oftentimes you'll hear that man stand up and say, Fathers and brothers. Fathers and brothers. It's like saying, those who are older and more seasoned and wise among us and those who are younger and filled with energy and vitality and strength. And I think John is doing something just very similar here. But John encourages them. He's unloaded a lot of heavy weight on them in this passage. Weight that could crush very sensitive consciences that don't need to be crushed, but rather need to be encouraged and assured of their faith. And he redirects our faith towards the foundation of our redemption. So I want to say to you, as the church of New St. Peter's, what John said to his readers. Children of God. Children not because you chose Him to be your Father. But children because of His gracious adoption of you through Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Whatever they are. On account of Jesus' name, His reputation, and all that He's done for you, and that alone. As a result, you know the Father. You know the Father, and even though you wrestle with love for this world, I can see in you that your desire to love your Father more and more, and that's because you were loved so deeply by your Father first. spiritual fathers and mothers among us. You have loved us. and You are loving us so well. And in this, you show forth the love of the Son of God who is from the beginning 
and who is loving us so very well through you. Younger Christians, both adults and covenant children, you have overcome the evil one because of the strength that is in you. Not the strength you have in yourself, but the strength of the one who is greater than the evil one, the spirit who indwells you. Your love for His Word, His Gospel, which is a love given to you by the Spirit, is showing forth an obedient love among us. And is daily taking over the kingdom of the evil one. Through this section, through this section, John is reminding his readers that despite the strong encouragement to moral holiness and obedient love that he has given them, The possession of salvation is not something that has to be daily repossessed or bought from God through obedience. It's not. It is secured by the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit alone. It is given by grace alone and it is received by faith alone. And so let me finish by going a step further in what I hope is received as as further encouragement. This will sound a little bit like Aaron's address to us during the announcement time last week, so hopefully it doesn't sound too redundant or boring. But I think it's appropriate, especially even after Jim's announcement this morning. When Aaron and I first talked about preaching through 1 John, our primary reason for wanting to do so was John's view of the gospel implications for living as the church. That was our main reason for wanting to do it. And like Aaron said last week, it can be easy for us, given the transitional phase that we're in, to believe that there's a lot of instability at New St. Peter's. That we're on shaky ground, that we're greatly lacking until we find a new senior pastor. And don't get me wrong, the officer of pastor is important. Senior pastor, associate pastor, assistant pastor, whatever adjective you put in front of it. And our family regularly prays that God would bring us a wise, seasoned, godly, and thoughtful senior shepherd. And I trust that your family does the same. The office of pastor is a gift It's a gift to the church. The pastor is not the church. Not even the apostles or the prophets through whom God gave us the revelation and on that foundation he built his church. Not even the apostles and the prophets are the church. Even given the special divine authority that they had, But as Ephesians 4 tells us, even the apostles and the prophets, along with pastors, are gifts to the church. But they themselves were not the church. And so, New St. Peter's, we haven't stopped being the church because we don't have a senior pastor. There's no need for us to feel shame or a feeling of nakedness about us because we don't have a senior pastor. 
We were not knocked down a peg, nor did we become second-class citizens when we lost our senior pastor in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is not taking less care of us or being less faithful or less kind to us now because we don't have a senior pastor. His spirit has not been withdrawn even a little because we don't have a senior pastor. And although I could spend the rest of the morning defending all of that with Scripture and passages from the Westminster Confession and writings from the Fathers until it bores you to tears, we should be particularly encouraged by the evidence of His great faithfulness and His presence among us through our growth in love and fellowship with one another, even in the last year. Just in the last week alone, just this last week, just the last seven days, I have heard several stories of women who have been hurting deeply, some for a very long time, who have been literally embraced and comforted and mourned with, while also being encouraged with the gospel message. I have heard of people who have come to our church with great physical and material and emotional and spiritual needs who for a variety of reasons were not able to stay with us very long or even in Dallas, but they reported back to us that they were so loved. They were so served and taken care of by Jesus who was showing them his love through you. The new measures that have recently been taken by the session to better organize the congregation for more personal and pastoral care is yet another sign of our corporate growth towards maturity. So if you want to have an idea of how the church is doing corporately in terms of its sanctification, well, that's always messy. Because it is for individuals as well. It's always a mixed bag. There's always places where we could be more sanctified and more mature. Always. Then there's places where God is maturing us in very robust and evident, tangible ways. What I'm trying to say is based on a passage we've read from 1 John chapter 2 and heard preached and studied together this morning, it is in this area that John has pointed us to that we have been growing very well and very exponentially recently. Please be encouraged by that. Please be encouraged by that. I could honestly list a lot more evidences along these grounds. But think about what we've just heard from God through the Apostle John's pen. Loving one another in the ways that I've even just mentioned have been happening among us. doesn't furnish us with badges of honor to wear. I'm not saying you should give each other all a pat on the back. Necessarily and say, wow, we really have arrived as a church. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it does declare His presence. 
John says so. It declares his presence. It declares our growth in the light as he is in the light. And it is through his gospel love proclaimed through us in word and in deed that he continues his nonviolent takeover of our church and our world. Amen.